0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us with wisdom, bless us with light. Father, we pray that we would we would know the enlightening power of your Holy Spirit, that we would understand your word, that we would not be those who merely hear the word and forget it, but those who hear it and do it. Pray that you would train us for righteousness, that we may be adequate equipped for every good work bless every one of our thoughts and meditations we make this prayer in the name of your son jesus amen be seated so we come now to the second chapter of the apostle peter's first epistle uh, the passage, as you see before you, begins with a therefore. So we have to look at what preceded. We've done that for the past—I don't know how many weeks—as we've gone through the first chapter. Uh, that first chapter was is a labyrinth of indicatives and imperatives, right? Statements about truth and commands based upon that truth. Peter is encouraging Christians with objective truths. Right, They are chosen, they are sprinkled by the blood of Christ, they have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, they are protected by the power of God, they, they receive as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls. He is also exhorting them in this first chapter, prepare your minds for action, right? keep sober in the spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed. Uh, Do not be conformed to your former lusts. Be holy as God is holy. And perhaps that's the the linchpin of the whole chapter, is be holy as God is holy, and everything else has been pointing toward that. And remember what I said in, in my first sermon on this letter, the whole letter was meant to encourage the faith of those who are suffering persecution. Calvin summarizes the book this way. The design of Peter in this epistle is to exhort the faithful to a denial of the world and contempt of it. What, what does contempt mean? I'm asking for interaction right now, I guess. What does contempt mean? A, a, a hatred right, scorn, to despise it, to despise the world. So um, Calvin is saying that Peter is trying to get us to hate the world, right? And he goes on, so that being freed from carnal affections and all earthly hindrances, they might with their whole soul aspire after, after the celestial kingdom of God, right? So hating the world, they might aspire for the world to come, and the peace and prosperity of that world. And so the book is meant to wean us from the world and set our hope on things ahead of us. And for those who are persecuted for their faith that hope that forward-looking orientation will sustain them through though the world will be hostile to them all along the way. They will the world will be no help to those who fix their hopes on the world to come. So the therefore at the beginning of chapter 2 points back toward the immediately preceding section. Verse 22, you remember, calls us to a sincere love of the brethren. A fervent love, a love that comes from the heart. Because this love of the brethren, of our brothers and sisters in the church, is to be evident certain behavior at odds with that love should be, as Peter writes here, put aside, set aside, laid off. If love for one another, the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins, is what should uh, control us, then malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander should all be in the process of being put down, of being killed, mortified. Notice that all of those sins listed Here in this first verse, have to do with our relationship with other people. Right? Malice is to treat others with evil intent. Right? Deceit is to misrepresent the truth to someone, usually to put yourself in a more favorable position. Hypocrisy is a sin against others in that you. You insist upon your righteousness, but your actions betray you. And so they see how your actions betray what you say. Um, Envy. Envy is to desire what somebody else has or what somebody else is or how somebody else looks or uh, what talents they may have. Um, And then slander is spreading damaging falsehoods about others so all of these actions are quite obviously contrary to love that he set out at the end of chapter 1. Um, they do, though, perfectly define the life of man outside of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Our national political rulers, just take a moment, our national political rulers appear to be unrestrained in their devotion to each of these sins. Right? In fact, it may be that they consider all of them to be virtues. Uh, malice is to um, malice is to hate those who are hateable, right? Or should I use the word despicable? Deceit is sophistication, right? Hypocrisy is the way of every politician who promises with no intent to ever deliver. Right, that is every politician. Envy is the explanation for all of the resentment that animates our national discourse. Right, all kinds of resentment, and everybody expressing their resentment all the time. And then slander. Well, slander—that's a national pastime. Right, that is—that is, that is uh, an easy one. We live in a culture in which the virtue of love is being put aside so that we might explore our continual indignation and our continual victimhood and our continual resentments. And so it's the Christian's calling to put aside all those evil ways. We are are called to grow in our ability to love, which will mean we more and more abhor malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander our orientation toward our brothers and sisters in the church, but also with those outside the church, will, will not be characterized as it once was by hostility and resentment and denunciations. Love, love rather should characterize how we relate to others. And, and the second table of the law, think of that, the commandments 5 through 10 teach us how to love. They teach us how to love our neighbor. Right, and this this and the commands to love God are the summary of the entire law. It is meant to teach us how and what to love. One of the striking things about our national discourse is the uninhibited hatred of non-Christians toward Christians, right? The uninhibited hatred. That non Christians have for Christians, and one of the most those wonderfully unexpected moments of clarity in our culture. Do you remember when the pro abortion forces in Texas, some five or six years ago, chanted "Hail Satan" as pro lifers and Christians were singing "Amazing Grace," right? And again, just a few weeks ago, when we were standing outside of the abortion clinic in Greenville, attempting to love our pre born neighbors. The malice and slander and hypocrisy was weighed out to us by those death-loving lesbian women, right? The slogans they chanted and the music they blared were all meant to express their malice toward us and their hatred of our views, which are the views of God, which come from Scripture. They, they want to kill babies, And they will not be stopped. Right? Love builds up while these sins laid out by Peter destroy. Right? There's a destructiveness to these sins that Peter lays out here. And and love does the opposite. It builds things up. It brings things together. It heals. It is not destructive like these sins here. And so... um, these sins will lead to destruction, and such is the way of those who know nothing about the love of God. They will live lives of destruction. This is the way of the world. This is the way of Satan, who is a deceiver and is a deceiver. Right? As pilgrims and strangers in the world, Christians will find themselves in, in just a continual stew of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. We live in this this stew. It's discouraging. Right? And at times it's it's the reason it's discouraging is because we imitate the world in these particular sins. Right? We we don't at those points resemble our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lived and lives by the law of love alone. And so when we aren't imitating Christ, when we're, we're engaging in these ug- sins, it's, it's so ugly, isn't it? We've been told to live another way. Our souls should be at rest in Jesus Christ. The love that has been poured out in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit should animate us. And so the envy and resentment that we see swirling around us shouldn't be what characterizes us. But at times, of course, it does. And that's grounds for repentance. Why shouldn't, I mean, why should we be free from, from these particular sins? Well, it's very easy because we have eternal life. I mean, if you don't have eternal life, then this world is all you have to live for. And you're going to grasp and clamor for any single little bit of it you can get. Right? So we have the forgiveness of sins. We have a knowledge of both our depravity and the the astonishing grace of God which eradicates our depravity, right? We, we do not need to envy the wicked. We do not need to, to use the tools of Satan to win the next political battle. We should be at rest. We should be able to laugh even as we fight because we know that we... Have eternal life now notice that 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 verse one of chapter two, after that, therefore, has all of those sins within a participial phrase, therefore, putting aside it means that this whole phrase serves as a sort of adverb for what follows from it. Um, it could be phrased like this: therefore, by putting aside all malice, all deceit, etc. Then we get another phrase that acts like an adverb, like newborn babes. So all of this is he's working toward a central uh, statement in here, and these are acting like adverbs. What now, and so the last one was like, like newborn babies. What does that last phrase describe? The heart of the exhortation is long for the pure milk of the word. So, by putting aside malice and envy and deceit, hypocrisy, and by being like newborn babies, we are to long for the pure milk of the word. The description of a newborn baby longing for milk really needs no explanation. It's an obvious metaphor, right? Most of us here have experienced or have experienced having a newborn baby and, and the relentless longing they have for milk, right? Every two hours, those newborn babies will interrupt a perfectly lovely nap. I'm speaking of their own nap, right? To, to make their longings known. They're not worried about waking up their siblings, right? They, they, um, they're not worried about their mother's um, sleep deprivation, they're not um, worried about um, being, being called a crybaby for crying all the time. They just want milk. Give me the milk. right? But why is it that the apostle is bringing in the example of newborn babies at this point? Because like a newborn baby whose devotion to milk is all-encompassing. We are in the same way to be devoted to the word of God. A Christian who does not read the word, let me say that again, the Christian who does not read the word, the Christian who does not sit under the preaching of the word, right? the Christian who does not thirst for every opportunity to learn more of the word is like a newborn baby that doesn't cry when it's hungry. A newborn baby that doesn't cry when it's hungry. I've never known a baby that doesn't long for milk. Have you? Um, perhaps there are some extraordinary cases of, of children of mothers who were on drugs whose pain tolerance is so high that they don't cry out for milk when they're hungry. But that's the exception that proves the rule. Right? And so, so the Christian, the apostle, teaches us, longs for the pure milk of the word. He yearns for it, like that newborn baby. There, there is nothing quite so wonderful, right, as when a newborn baby, after crying viciously, right, and snot is everywhere and tears are all over, latches onto his mother's breast, and there's immediate contentment. You know, I, I still hear that. Right? Um-, um. Mm, mm, mm. And they're just calm. Right? So, you know, so too it is the nature of a a newborn Christian to long for the teaching of God's word. John Brown writes, Like newborn infants, the Christian has a kind of instinctive, unquenchable desire after the the suitable spiritual nourishment of his new nature. He loves the truth as it is in Jesus. He is restless when it is out of view. The whole world without this cannot make him happy. And he never enjoys himself more than when clearly apprehending the meaning of those exceedingly great and precious promises by which his new nature is sustained. Right? When when he's not being fed, he's thinking about feeding. And when he's feeding, he's like, these are Glorious promises. These are glorious truths. And think about this. It is not simply that a baby wants to have what it wants to have. Without his mother's milk, that baby will be malnourished. Right? He cries because he wants something that is satisfying. He doesn't even know that, that what he's getting leads to his nourishment. He just knows it's good and it calms him. Perhaps you're a malnourished Christian, right? You've not gone to the source of your nourishment. You, you know that you can't make it. Um, you know that you can't make it, and there have been very few days where you've had to, but you know you can't make it through a day without eating some food. But the word of God, that you can go without, right? But that's not true. It's not true that you can go, out with the, go without that meal. God has spread out for you. I mean, think of this. God has spread out for you a feast in his word. And not only do you have no desire to taste of its delicacies, but you think that you have no need of the nutrition that comes from a feast that God has laid out before you. It's undoubtedly true that if you neglect the word of God, you will be a malnourished Christian. Right, A malnourished Christian, one who does not have the nutrients of the word of God coursing through his veins, strengthening him, will begin to forget what God has said. I mean, how many times do you go back to scripture and you're like, Oh man, I forgot what God had said there. And how lovely it is that I needed that right now. Right? But, but imagine not ever going back to the word and the things that you would forget. And, and he, God, or that person will begin then to look for solutions elsewhere. The discontentment won't go away. right? The discontentment will stay. And you could have fed on God's word and, and demolished that discontentment. But instead you'll go to some other source that's close to you to try and work on that discontentment. And then eventually, if you stay long enough away from the word of God, you'll begin to think that the foolishness of man is more potent than the wisdom of God. You will gradually get weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker, spiritually speaking, right? And you will only have as the source of truth in the end your own stupid thoughts. And I'm not using stupid as a scandal word. I'm using stupid as they're stupid. Stupid is a scripture word. Why is the binding not breaking on all of our Bibles? Well, perhaps we buy Bibles every two years. Um Or perhaps the Bible binding is breaking on our Bibles, but it's because of all those modern Bible bindings are terrible bindings, right? We've all been through that. But why is your binding not breaking? Because of the frequency with which it's laying open on your lap and you're turning the pages and it's being carried with you and it's being thrown in the back seat as you're going off to a Bible study and and those things. Um, You've got time for Podcasts. Right? Larry doesn't. The rest of us do. You've got time for podcasts. Why not the Word of God? Why not the Word of God? Get an audio Bible. Right? If, you're, if you find yourself listening to podcasts instead of reading God's Word, then get an audio Bible and call it your Bible podcast. And just listen to that. Play it instead of music or talk radio or things that are not going to edify you like the inerrant, inspired, eternal word of God will. Right. Memorize one verse a day. Just a verse, a half a verse. Memorize two words a day. And then just carry that with you through the day. You'll forget it the next day, but you'll have it for that day. Right? Memorize a verse. It'll take you four to five minutes to memorize a verse. And it will stay with you and you'll mull it over and that's called meditation. That's Christian meditation. Right? Nesbitt says this about the different kinds of nourishment that come from all parts of the Word of God. He says, This desire of the regenerate after the Word ought to extend itself to all the parts thereof, every one of these having influence upon their spiritual growth. So he's saying... All parts of the Bible are profitable, just like Paul says to Timothy. The discovering and threatening part of it should serve them as a glass wherein to see their defects and spots. That so they may be chased to Christ. The promises thereof being the channel through which life, strength, transforming virtue to make them resemble their Lord is conveyed to them. And the precepts and the directions thereof serve as a lamp to direct them in their Christian course. For here the word indefinitely, without restriction to one part of it more than any other, is by the apostle held forth as the object of the desire of the regenerate, desire the sincere milk of the word. And so drink in all parts of the word of God. There are no boring parts of the word of God. There are no boring parts. You're just weak. That's why you think they're boring. Right? You're just weak, and you're just not used to feeding on certain kinds of word. And so you're not in the zone that you need to be when you come to those passages. Drink in all the word of God. Study the word of God carry around that Bible, break the binding, have pages that are coming out of it that you lose, and then you have to buy a new Bible at that point. Um, Invest in a Bible that you like to hold because of the feel of the leather. I mean, do something, even if it's just coaxing your flesh to read the Bible. Right? If you like the smell of the book, if it gets you reading the Word of God, good. Do it. Right? These miserable pew Bibles are no fun to read. I mean, that's where I'm at. They, I mean, they're just clunky and the pages aren't flat and, and they're there for a service, right? They're there for those who didn't bring their Bible. But anyway, all of that's for free. I'll come back around to my manuscript now. Um, The, Bible, the apostle goes on here and he gives us the reasons why we should long for the pure milk of the word. He says, So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. By longing for it and, and pursuing those longings and being in the word, we grow in respect to, to salvation. So, as I've been saying, there will be no growth without proper nourishment. They, the, the way you grow in the Christian faith, the way you go from immaturity to maturity, the way you go from someone who is blown about by every wind of doctrine to someone who is immovable and unshakable in his faith is by the means of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. Right? The Word of God says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you tasting? Where are you tasting from? Are you tasting from the source? Right? The Apostle Peter is telling you that that you taste of the Lord and his word. He has made himself known in this book, and it is objective truth, not merely your subjective feelings about anything and everything. It is the means by which God will convict you of your sins, of which he will assure you of his love and grace, of which he will give you strength when you face trials, of which... He will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one as they come against you. And so this book is your every meal. It's your only meal. So do you want to grow in respect to your salvation? Do you want to mature? Do you want to grow? Do you want to have assurance? Do you want to have victory over your sins? Do you want to mature? Do you want to know what God would have you do? Do you want to know the will of God? Do you want to know what to believe? Do you want to know what your gracious Heavenly Father has said to you? Right? Do you want growth? Devote yourself, therefore, to the study of the Word of God. It's very simple. Take an interest in the book God wrote. And then verse 3 comes along, and it's a slap to the face. Right, like the Apostle Paul does and the Apostle Peter, because we get a conditional statement, and Christians hate conditional statements, and people who believe in the grace of God hate conditional statements, because it seems to seems to put something on our shoulders. So then, verse three is this conditional statement: "If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." Long for the spiritual milk of the word. By it, you're going to grow if this. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's undoubtedly true that the reason some people do not devote themselves to the word of God is because they have not tasted the kindness of the Lord. Right? Why go to a book where you think the author is is distant, aloof, uh, unkind, and... um, Not helpful. Well, you don't go to a book like that. You would would neglect that book, right? But um, the person like that has no knowledge of God. They have some facts about God. They may consider themselves virtuous or moral or conservative, but they don't know God as what? They don't know God as a father, right? They don't know God as a savior. They don't know God as a God who loves them and sent his son to save them from their sins, right? They know God as a concept, but not as a person. They think God as a force rather than as a being who has been kind to them, kind to mankind, kind to sinners. In other words, only those who have known God in this way as a good and gracious father will, will ever long for the word of God. That's it. You've all received a form letter, right? You guys have gotten form letters in the mail or in the email. One where they just plop your name into the salutation, but you know that everyone else in the neighborhood or everyone else on the email list has received the same letter. What we don't like about those letters is it tries to be personal, but it is only personal superficially. The man who has not known the kindness of God will approach the word of God like one of those form letters. It will be to him impersonal. But the one who has known the kindness of the Lord, who has had the spirit of God melt his heart in regeneration, that has wept, right, has wept at the thought of the terribleness of his sins and the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. He's going to approach the word of God like a love letter not a form letter, right? He will read and reread it and he'll come back to it and he'll think about that phrase and what it means for him and what, what God intended with that and he'll, he'll really scrutinize all the words and, and he'll, he'll cry over it and he'll rejoice over it and he'll get caught up by it and he'll just read and read and read because he knows one thing that God is speaking directly to him. God is speaking to you when you read his word. So could it be that you have a very impersonal view of God? And that is impacting the way you're thinking about his word. Could it be that you have never tasted the kindness of God? And so what is love letters to somebody else reads like a quick start guide for a a weed eater to you. This, is, this was my experience when I came to faith during my sophomore year of college. Before that point, though, I was reading Scripture because, for some reason, pe- people were telling me to read the Bible. And for another reason, I was curious about it anyway. The Scripture was obscure, and it was ugly, and it was incoherent. But during that summer, when I came to, alive by the Holy Spirit, I remember that overnight, Scripture became something else entirely to me. I mean, God became something else entirely to me, but the scripture as well. Because I knew God, and I knew the value of Jesus Christ and the utter glory of the one true living God. His word was now to me a joyful delight that would allow me to get to know the one I loved. Whereas I thought that the book was like any other, tainted by man's thoughts after my conversion, I was devoted to it because it was the will of my shepherd, the will of God inscripturated. And I sang along with the psalmist, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. And so, dear brothers and sisters, do you love the Lord? Do you rejoice in his astonishing kindness towards you? If you do you'll be devoted to his word you will delight in it like a woman delights in the letters of her husband her loving husband right if you've left off reading god's word return to it just get back to it i mean if you've never been in the in the you know you've never been in the groove before then get into the groove if but if you've left off reading it return to it if you've been on again off again Be more faithful. In the end, take your spiritual pulse by knowing that it is those who have tasted and appreciated the kindness of God who will most be in the word. When many people were leaving the Lord because they thought his words to be hard, the Apostle Peter, who loved Jesus, who knew of his kindness, said the following and may we have the same kind of devotion lord to whom shall we go you have words of eternal life what other place can we go to get the eternal the words of eternal life they're written here for us in the scriptures and trust me they are not hard to understand they are simple god wants us to know what they mean God wants us to know what they mean. God wants us to find joy and strength and rebuke and repentance in all all our spiritual life by the Holy Spirit working through this word.